This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new and current films on cinema and elsewhere, and then ties them into films from days gone by of similar genres and directors and stars and so on, and then hopefully widens your appreciation of a film uh, connected to what's going on on the screens today. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts reporter here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we are crossing the triple frontier into the genre of men and women on mission movies. Yes, we're going to take a look at uh, journeys into the heart of darkness for money, for glory, for king and country, and hopefully come out the other side. Stephen, when I found out that J.C. Chandor and Mark Bowl were working together on a movie about a group of friends who were formal, former special forces people going down into Central America to uh, steal a bunch of money from a drug lord. Uh, I was like, this is a men on a mission movie, which made me unaccountably happy. This was a genre that I grew up with, that I watched a lot when I was a kid and absolutely adored. But it's not a genre, it's kind of a fallow genre now. It's kind of the equivalent to, you know, people, young people today talk about dad rock. I feel sort of <laughs> like this is, is dad movie. It is a very dad movie uh, um, form of story. Yeah, like the war movie of the past. And they were really popular in the 60s and 70s. Um, and they sort of feel like if I was to describe them, they sort of take two, they're sort of two different uh, sub-genres of the sub-genre. There's the, the World War II movie where a group of commandos goes in. Sometimes they're misfits. Sometimes they don't know each other. Sometimes they have reasons not to trust each other. Go in to, like, try and destroy a high-value target uh, and end the Nazis, uh, you know, dominance over a certain area. There's that one. Then in the 70s, especially in the late 60s, 70s, there's the sort of, like, British post-colonial mercenary picture that's set in Africa. And, you know, those ones are the ones that have probably aged the least well, politically yes. speaking. They're the sort of, uh, you know, a lot of white men shooting at black men and killing them. And it's all, yeah, they, they can be a little hard to watch for anyone with a political, you know, the, that political perspective. Um, and I, I also noted in the last week, um, the government of Belgium apologized to the Congolese for the atrocities committed while they were in charge. Uh, I, Finally! I, I, I wasn't... <laughs> it's only I, been 100 years. Yeah, that's right. I, I wasn't uh, altogether... You know, when I when I heard about that, I'm like, and we're talking about these movies, at least two of them are set in the Congo, if not explicitly then yes. suggested. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that through our more... Uh, uh, wise eyes wide open, we can see these things, these stories for for kind of what they are, and some of that's pretty unpleasant. But yeah, uh, of course, I should mention we're in Halifax, and there are connections between little old Halifax, Nova Scotia, and the uh, subjugation of the Congo by Belgium. Uh, and then there's some sta streets in the North End named after so-called explorers, for lack of a better term, right. or, or in fact. More or less mercenaries uh, working for the Belgian, uh, the King Leopold, I think, uh, of Belgium. Um, I think Stanley and Stair Street. Uh, uh, I, I guess Stanley was the more moral of the two, and Stairs was a bit of a monster. And and, uh -huh. uh, and there have been efforts to get those uh, street names changed, but I don't think much has come of that. Yeah. So. so yeah. So I mean, we're trying to keep our our 
we're aware of some of these uh, these contradictions and these concerns. At the same time, a lot of these movies were basically just straight ahead uh, action movies of the era, and they really died out in the early '80s when instead of men on a mission movies, it became man on a mission movies. The Rambo's and the Commandos really took over in in the era of uh, Reagan. But uh, occasionally, they have this sort of a genre has resurfaced. You could say that Predator is a man on the mission yes, movie. Yes, very much. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Munich, that's another uh, Spielberg picture. It, it qualifies, though it's just as much, I guess, an espionage drama. Um, and you've got a couple other uh, Schwarzeneggers, maybe Commando, Raw, yeah. Raw Deal, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, The Expendables, of course, which is not a, not a franchise I'm particularly fond of, but it, de- it definitely qualifies. Well, yeah, they're they're fun, but they're they're kind of the marquee value comes first and story comes second in those films. I, I've seen a couple of them. I don't think I've seen the entire series, but uh, but they definitely take this idea of gathering a bunch of familiar actors and throwing them into the jungle and taking it to the sort of exponential level, but not with the kind of craft of story and and uh, you know pacing and plot uh, that uh, some of the films that we looked at today have. Yeah, yeah. So Triple Frontier is on Netflix, and uh, as I said, J.C. Chandor, Mark Bowl. These are, I mean, Mark Bowl. I sort of know it as a writer from uh, uh, Zero Dark Thirty. J.C. Chandor for A Most Violent Year, which is a great film that he made a few years back. Um, and uh, this is, uh, I gather, although they never discuss it in the film, Triple Frontier, the title comes from the name of the three countries' borders in, in Central America. I think it's Paraguay, Brazil, and Bolivia, or Brazil, Colombia, and Peru. But anyway, they don't, they, don't make a, they don't really specify, but it's, the, the idea is that Oscar Isaac, um, he plays a guy named Pope. He's sort of the initiator, the last of his old Special Forces guy. He's still trying to make a difference in South America, chasing a drug kingpin. His tactics are dirty, but years of frustration has have taken their toll on him and he's got a bad knees and a bad neck and he feels like you know his he and his buddies never got what they were owed either by their employers or their country so he gets a shot at this kingpin and this storehouse of loot so he recruits his old pals uh ben affleck charlie hunnam pedro pascal and garrett headland none of whom are doing too well back in, in the united states and he he basically suggests, look, this is a great payday. We can go down there. We can use our skills, and we can take care of business. And uh, you know, the o- we'll only have to kill the kingpin, and that'll be good for everybody. You know, there is something about these movies. If they do have a thought in their head, it's about the morality of of killing people of war, especially if you're not doing it for country. If you're doing it just for your own self-aggrandizement, uh, mercenaries and you know, the life of the mercenary. And and uh, I do appreciate that some of those conversations do happen in between. The bullets fly. Yeah, this uh, this film definitely uh, borrows <laughs> quite extensively from many of the films that we watched. In fact, I think we may have watched more movies for this episode than just about any other because we really plowed through uh, uh, films of this type uh, over the over the course of uh, of the past week or so. And it's it's amazing how many similarities. Uh, you know, when you watch them all at once, how many different plot points and and ideas and even character types uh, just sort of come to the surface and uh you know things uh, that all pop up in triple frontier like the oh it'll be easy we'll just be in and out in, in no time and we'll grab the loot and we'll be you know sipping margaritas by the pool uh you know before you can say bob's your uncle sort of thing and of course uh it never goes that easy no and, it really does and uh you know triple frontier basically just ups the ante with one thing after another um in a, in a way that many of these films do but it, it uh it's it's very well made i mean chandor 
Um, he's able to kind of juggle action, suspense, and character uh, very well. If you've seen a Most Violent Year, if you haven't seen it, I we highly recommend it. I believe we did discuss it on uh, New York uh, movies. New York movies. That was one uh, of our first podcast, first podcasts. So yeah. Go back. So obviously we have a, we have a connection to this filmmaker and are pretty excited to see this. It's it's a shame that it's on Netflix. It would be nice to see it on a big screen because yeah. there, it, it is shot you know in the jungle and the Andes and there's some beautiful scenes and and location shooting and all that kind of thing. But uh, you know if this is how this film's going to get made, I guess that's how it's going to get made. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it is. I'm glad we're seeing it at all. I guess. Yes, but that's true. Uh, but you're right, and I think maybe because. Ben Affleck's not as big a star as he once was. And the genre certainly, certainly, as I said, is kind of fallow. Like, there's not a lot of people making these kinds of war movies. It makes sense that, that it would find a home on Netflix. Um, I like the movie a lot. I think it has a few issues uh, as it goes along. There are longers, there are lulls in the action where I feel like uh, it, it could have used a little bit more judicious editing. Uh, all told, the action sequences when they come are really solid. Uh, I, I liked especially um, Affleck and um, uh, Oscar Isaac, their characters are really quite well-defined and and, uh, and they have real arcs. The other three guys, less so. They're more their skills, I guess. Uh, but uh, and as you said, the cinematography, the location cinematography is terrific. Um, it does, the plotting does veer into implausibility. There, some characters have a sort of attack of conscience late in the running, which feels a little unlikely given the kind of, men they are and the things that they've been through and the decisions they're making. But I would say, you know what, I would say I would recommend the film, especially if you're a fan for of these movies, these old school pictures like The Guns of Navarone, Where Eagles Dare, uh, or The Wild Geese, which we'll talk about. Um, it works. And, uh, you know, I think its worst crime is the fact that once again uses Creedence Clearwater Revival's <laughs> Run Through the Jungle. Enough. I mean, that is that is a song that has been so overused any time that a filmmaker goes to a tropical climate and has some kind of action. I mean, it, last time I remember it was in um, Skull... Uh, uh, Kong Skull Island, and I remember thinking even <laughs> then, it's like, come on, we don't need to hear this song again, uh, especially when there are other songs about mercenaries like Warren Zevon's Jungle Work or, uh, you know, one of those tracks of his that are, are basically sitting there uh, languishing <laughs> when filmmakers yeah. have a little bit of imagination, could use more of those kinds of songs. And they're probably a lot cheaper to... to to uh, buy the rights to one would hope Clearwater one would hope though I will say at the beginning of this film uh, Oscar Isaac's characters in a helicopter listening to Metallica for whom the bell tolls and that's pretty cool that's well used well that's and that makes more sense because you know I I actually, I remember I talked to somebody in Pantera once. Uh, he was talking about how they they often heard from guys in the forces who would blast, you know, Pantera and other, you know, sort of aggressive metal bands in, in the cockpit or in the chopper. Or what Like that would psych them up before, sure. you know, before uh, going on the offensive. And, uh, and so, yeah, that makes a lot more sense than hearing Run Through the Jungle for the umpteenth time. But, um, I, yeah, I like this film a lot. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know... It, you feel like you're putting on a comfortable shoe, you know, when you slip into one of these movies, because you kind of, you know, you kind of know in advance what you're going to get, but it does throw a few little twists and turns your way. And, and, uh, you know, I liked Affleck here. I'm, I'm not always the biggest fan of Ben Affleck, but here he plays a guy who's really up against it in his personal life and, and things could be a lot better. And, and he, he plays it appropriately downcast and, and, uh, you know, 
that uh, that sort of grit and determination that I recall from movies like The Town, for example, that it seems to to come through. He seems to dig into that because I remember, you know, it, it's so funny that he's doing this film. You know, it seems like Argo wasn't that long ago when uh, he was just kind of on top of things, but uh, but here he he kind of gets back to his roots a little bit, if you will. Um, and uh, I think he's pretty effective. And Oscar Isaac is just one of those guys that you can watch anytime doing just about yeah. anything. He just, you know, like he has that kind of, you know, ebullient uh, charisma that uh, gets put to good use here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, Affleck is funny, isn't he? It's like we could do a whole episode on him. He's had such a terrific career, but he's had his ups and downs. He's been in the tabloid eye, and that's made me kind of tired of his face in some regards yes. uh, but then he's made choices like oh I'm going to be Batman I'm going to be a middle aged Batman and <laughs> and it never really worked and now he's not Batman anymore He's which I think is probably a good move on his part he's realized that that's not working um, I really admire him more as a filmmaker and a director than I do as an actor these days yeah and I think um, he, maybe he'd rather be doing that yeah. more than more than anything but yeah. uh, and uh, you know certainly the, the times he's been behind the camera have been very effective so you know, maybe this is just something to do <laughs> before the next directing assignment comes along. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, uh, you know, looking back at this genre, the Men on a Mission movie, uh, my the first one that I saw that I can remember is The Guns of Navarone. Now, I know you have your memory and your <laughs> knowledge of, of, of cinema goes a lot further back than, than mine, in it, generally speaking. So, so I don't know if you want to suggest others that people could, could look for. Well, I mean, there's been all manner of jungle pictures and, and, and uh, going back to the silent days. And, uh, you know, the, there's uh, the very first uh, sound serial. And I'm going to give a shout out to uh, a guy I know, Eric Grayson, who has a podcast called Dr. Film. But he's been in uh, the works restoring the very first sound serial called King of the Congo, which is, a you know, ostensibly a, a kind of uh, mission into the, into the heart of the jungle with all kinds of... Uh, traps and suspenseful events happening along the way. And I've seen chapters of it and it's actually pretty good that they're, they're still using some of the silent film techniques. So it's not as stiff and stagey as some of the, the early sound films. Uh, and I, I believe it's got Boris Karloff in probably his first sound role. Um, so, so there's that going for it and hopefully that'll, uh, that restoration will be available in some format down the roads. But, but uh, th- there was a string of a traitor horn and, and all these kind of bring them back alive jungle pictures. Um, you know about big game hunters and so on. It's 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 certainly got its roots in that. And then then if you think uh, about it, like the original, you mentioned Kong on Skull Island. King Kong probably is the original kind of man on a mission movie. Uh, you know they they go into the jungle to bring back this uh, big ape and uh, rescue Fay Ray and and uh, you know some guys make it back, some guys don't. Spoiler alert. And. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, and then, of course, everything happened. Every, most people just remember the New York stuff and the Empire State Building. But there is that whole squadron of guys going through the jungle. They're trying to get Kong. They're trying to get Fay Ray back. Uh, and uh, I feel like that might be the kind of um, ground zero for this kind of thing. And then there were other films along the way. Uh, uh, this one called Five Came Back, I think, from the late 30s about a plane crash in the jungle. And it's not so much about a mission as just trying to get out of the jungle alive after a plane crash. But but uh, a lot of the same uh, story uh, ideas and, and, and plot uh, um, devices are, are present there as well. So... Uh, you know, those are the kind of adventure films that these films kind of take on. But of course, they just uh, uh, inject uh, an extra liter of uh, machismo into things, and and kind of uh, you know certainly uh, once the war came along, there were a lot more of uh, kind of 
big war-related ideas that they could uh, use as well. So, uh, And then that brings us up to some of the films that we got around to watching. I think Guns of Navarone is probably the earliest one of the bunch that we uh, took a look at. Yeah, yeah. And I would say that, I mean, I remember it from when I was a kid. It's sort of the original Commando movie for me, adapting the Alistair MacLean novel. And uh, there, there some, you see with these, these movies a lot of names uh, – uh, repeated in terms of uh, their adapting novels that are were popular, um, you know names like Alistair MacLean, like Frederick Forsyth, uh, like Wilbur Smith. I mean, these are the sort of like two-fisted, two-gunned, um, tough guy novels that otherwise known as you know airport airplane reading uh, kind of, of of books and uh, you know appealing to to men and uh, about uh, about the special forces about war and uh, in in exotic quote unquote exotic uh, locales now guns of Navarone uh, Gregory Peck David Niven Anthony Quinn Anthony Quayle uh, some of it seemed pretty stagey this is 1961 and at Two hours and 35 minutes, it's pretty long, but it's still, I think, a very watchable Sunday afternoon matinee kind of movie, um, whereas I found myself enjoying a lot of the drama between the characters as they they uh, insert themselves onto this uh, Greek island where they're this uh, Nazi encampment and find their way to the guns. They take them a long time to get there, um, but uh, and then the guns themselves are so clearly models in some shots. <laughs> yes, it's, well. <laughs> it's funny to see the actors looking up at them. Um, and then, you know, and then there are scenes where the, the ocean beyond them is is just... Anyway, there, there's some stuff that digital uh, media reveals that maybe... And maybe we're just a more sophisticated audience now, so this stuff is more obvious. But uh, I still enjoyed it. And I, this might be the last time that a Men on a Mission movie was nominated for Academy Awards. It got nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a terrific film, and... Uh most of it has aged pretty well. I mean, it's, I mean, you've got guys like Anthony Quinn, Gregory Peck and David Niven, obviously their acting styles are very much of a, of a period. Uh, but, uh, but they they have, they're full of personality. Uh, you know, they get to go up against Nazis who are of course the ultimate bad guys. And, uh, and it does, you know, kind of have a leisurely pace. It probably doesn't need to be two and a half hours long, but, but I enjoyed the trip. You know, I guess the idea is that you like these characters so much. You want to spend time with them as they make their way across this Island, which I later learned doesn't actually exist. There is no Navarone. And there's like, we watched two movies about this Island or at least had it in the title. And, and it's actually a place they made up. They, it's based on a real, uh, location where, uh, the Germans had taken over a heavily barricaded, uh, seaport. Um, and it wasn't so much about these giant guns as just the fact that they had this strategic, um, stronghold, naval stronghold that was really hard to uh, to get them out of. So it's 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 based on an actual. I don't know if it's based on an actual mission, but an actual situation in the Second World War. And uh, you know, and and it has uh, it has some uh, notoriety as one of the first times that Carl Foreman, who was a uh, a writer, a screenwriter, who was one of the most prominent victims of the Hollywood blacklist uh, against uh, you know trying to root out communists out of Hollywood. Carl Foreman was one of the more uh, prominent members of. The, uh, the the famous uh, Hollywood Ten, who uh, were either banned from working or, or some were were put in prison um, for periods of time, and and Foreman was one of the ones to sort of be able to crack through and and get his name back on the screen. Uh, I believe he worked on uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, which I guess is sort of another semi man on a mission film in a way, uh, and uh, he had that had to go out under a pseudonym, and in fact uh, it wasn't until years later that they they put uh, his name back on uh, copies of the film. 
The last film we mentioned was The Guns of Navarone, one of the great uh, Second World War set action adventure films of the 1960s, uh, certainly from early in the decade with a script by uh, Carl Foreman and directed by J. Lee Thompson, who I think uh, you know was a British director who later did a whole lot of uh, Charles Bronson movies. And, uh, you know, it took uh, took a few years, about uh, 20 of them, before uh, somebody decided we should make a sequel to this um, using another novel uh, by Alistair MacLean, who wrote the uh, the book that the first one was based on. And uh, it came out uh, in, I think, 79, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, it was an opportunity to gather another all-star cast. Um, they got Guy Hamilton, who... Uh, is probably best known as a director of a handful of James Bond movies, and uh, and then assembled this uh, pretty remarkable cast uh, led by Robert Shaw, who of course was on a hot streak uh, uh, following Jaws, uh, um, and oddly enough was in the second James Bond movie as the bad guy, uh, the Russian uh, killer Red, um, back in in that second James Bond movie, and then we also get James Bond alumnus or alumni uh, Barbara Bach from The Spy Who Loved Me plays uh, a um, Yugoslavian uh, partisan and uh, Richard Keel, who was uh, of course Jaws, another Jaws connection, uh, the man with the metal teeth in Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Uh, so there are all these weird connections between these films, and uh, basically the uh, members of the squad from the Guns of Navarone. Although we, of course uh, we don't see Gregory Peck, David Niven, or Anthony Quinn, but uh, we get one sort of doctored shot of I think uh, of. Um, of Robert Shaw uh, kind of lighting a cigarette after the dam, uh, not dam, after <laughs> the guns blow up at the end of Guns Yeah, he's, he, I guess he's kind of the Gregory Peck character, and then Edward sort of. Fox is the Niven character, I yeah. think. Although they, they aren't bending over backwards to try to connect the two movies, you know. Once they make the original suggestion that these two were part of the Navarone crew, then, then we're off to a whole different story. Yeah, we're actually off to Yugoslavia, where they're supposed to uh, blow up a bridge and keep the Nazis from getting making a huge gain in ground in Yugoslavia. So uh, basically that's, that's it. And uh, you know, the, we have Harrison Ford on hand as an American who I think uh, the character was in the book was New Zealand or something like that. And Harrison Ford wasn't going to attempt a New Zealand accent. So uh, they, they, he's, he's Busby and I, I or um, no, not Busby, uh, the, Burnsby, Bartleby, what the heck is his name? It's uh, Barnsby. And, uh, <laughs> but there's a character named Barnsby in the original movie who's a completely different character, so I don't, I don't know if that's a yeah. weird little nod. or Again, what. yeah, the, the, the connections are, the, are pretty tenuous on the whole. But uh, this is actually a fun, for a movie that feels a little bit like a cash-in, we're going to just use the, yes. this, the reputation of this beloved classic, and we're going to you know redo all the casting. And it's actually quite a fun Men on a Mission movie, you know, it, uh, it, it turns out that uh, that Harrison Ford's character has his own sort of team of commandos. They're headed in, and, and then at the last minute, um, you've got uh, Shaw and Fox's characters who get added to them, and he, of course, Ford is not happy about this, uh, and they, they parachute into Yugoslavia, uh, and somehow Carl Weathers joins them <laughs> yes. as he's being escorted by a group of military police they had to negotiate with in order to commandeer a plane. They get him on board, and then, yes, they, they do deal with Richard Keel, who I think might be dubbed. 
dubbed. It, it was I wasn't hundred percent sure well, it was actually <laughs> his voice, uh, but he's quite a physical presence as this uh, Yugoslavian partisan freedom fighters who who might be working for the Nazis. They might not. I don't want to spoil it, but there is some some shifting allegiances yes, going on. Some here. very blurry uh, boundaries yeah. between <laughs> between the uh, partisans and the and the and those who are supporting the, the Nazis. Yeah, uh, uh, Ford. You know, he's got quite a bit of star power already. I mean, this is, was made right after Star Wars, so he uh, he doesn't quite has have the swagger, but he does have the sort of youthful, uh, good-looking kind of presence, which uh, which I think it's great to watch him in this movie. I, I really enjoyed him, and he and Shaw have some good scenes together, and there's great landscape cinematography. It was actually shot on location in Bosnia-Herzegovina and Montenegro, so they they do a lot of good stuff, and, and there's some model work, too, which isn't too bad for late 70s, uh, so yeah, for the most part, I was kind of pleasantly surprised that this was this film was so watchable. Yeah, Ford still has that smart alecky nature, which somehow left him at some point when he transformed into a grumpy old man. I'm not sure when that happened. We we thought maybe regarding Henry was was kind of the turning point where it became a bit of a sourpuss. Um, but you know, and, and it's easy to forget you know, how much charm he had on on charisma on screen, and and certainly. Uh, I mean, certainly it's present uh, whenever he's playing Han Solo, at least in the original trilogy. Um, and and here you get that in spades. The, the, he had some interesting roles sort of when that post-Star Wars fame came upon him. There's a very unusual comedy western called The Frisco Kid with, oh, sure. uh, with Gene Wilder, which is worth a watch if you get a chance to see it. Uh, there's another World War II uh, or Second World War romance set uh, in England called Hanover Square. Um and or is it Hangover Square? I can't remember. Which no, H- Hanover or Hanover, Hanover Street. Hanover Street. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I haven't actually seen it. I feel like I should probably add that to my list because you know the young Harrison Ford films are few and far between, and that and it's kind of uh, that's probably one of his rare kind of romances. Um, you know, and then eventually you know Working Girl and other things showed that he could expand his range a little bit. But here he is in full on adventure mode, um, and of course he clashes with Shaw, and they have some fun uh, sparks from their. Uh, differing styles of soldiering and their personality and, and uh, you know, which is of course a, a trait of all these films that the, the members of the team clash or they don't get along, but we need him. Uh, we need him along and, and, until they don't or uh, until uh, someone gets shot, someone gets shot or somebody's true colors are revealed or, or what have you. And, uh, and it, you know, the, I got to say that the special effects aren't much better here than they were in uh, Guns of Navarone, to be honest. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, it, I, I might argue that point. I think they're a little better, but there's still there well, is still the model work. Like there's a dam and a bridge that both need to be dealt with, and the 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 cinematography within the dam that clearly they found a dam to shoot in and on. But it's when things go when things start to blow up that you're like, oh, these are these are models. Yeah, I was reminded of Earthquake, um, <laughs> the Charlton Heston disaster film, which sure. apparently is getting a lovely restored uh, reissue with extra footage of all the films that needed to be restored. Um, <laughs> it's a film that might benefit from having less footage, but yeah. um, they, uh, they, they they added like 25 minutes to it for the TV viewing, so we get to see all of that in all its glory. But I have a, I have a weak spot for that film. And uh, yeah, I remember this coming out, and it was a big deal because, of course, Harrison Ford just kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, obviously, he'd been in American Graffiti, but uh, you know, as far as most people were concerned, Star Wars was where he really became a star. And, and that's kind of what they were banking on. Of course, Robert Shaw was a you know pretty dependable uh, from the, the both the Sting and Jaws, which were just mega hits for their time. And uh, I don't recall this being a huge hit or getting terribly well received. I, I don't know if critics felt that it was maybe too similar to the original or not as good as the original or what what the deal was with um, 
Forest Hen, but uh, it's a film that's, I think it's had to claw its way back into respectability over time to some degree, because it is, you know, a pretty old fashioned adventure film with some, some great moments, some great star power in it. And, uh, and a few, uh, a few unexpected moments as well. Yeah, no, you're right. And, uh, and it's, it definitely worth seeing. Uh, now one of the films that you suggested that we watch was not one that I was familiar with. It goes back 10 years from Force 10, uh, and that is Dark of the Sun, which was released in the UK as The Mercenaries. Uh, I think what may be most memorable about this picture was that it was directed by Jack Cardiff, who best known as a cinematographer. There's actually a great documentary about him and yes. his work. But he, uh, he maybe less success as a director, though he worked a lot. He directed a lot of films. Um, now, Dark of the Sun, uh, you know that the film is going to look good, thanks to his talent as a filmmaker and as as someone who can capture a really vital image um there's a sequence early on with train cars linking up at night that's backlit that's absolutely gorgeous i was really impressed by that um now this is a film that stars rod taylor and jim brown jim brown playing uh an african uh gentleman with a very american accent for <laughs> yeah. a guy from Con- the congo but you know whatever um and uh, I, I, I thought maybe his parents moved to the states or something when he was a kid I, that's I don't know. That, that's the best I could come <laughs> yeah, up with. Sure, sure. I whatever gets you through the day, man. <laughs> um, well, he did, he did go to university. Like he said, he went to he go to USC or something. Like uh, that. Okay, so okay. They, they do. There is a line where he says he went to university in the states. So I'm thinking, well, at what point did he go over there for university or was there beforehand? So yeah, that's possible. That's possible. Uh, and they're a pair of mercenaries who put together a team, including a Nazi played by Peter Karsten, uh, <laughs> who have three days to save a bunch of uh, women and children in the Congo uh, and at the same time pick up a stash of diamonds. Uh, apparently all of this was actually shot in Jamaica. Uh, so, you know, they do have the tropical kind of jungle foliage that you need for a film like this and you have a certain amount of in- infrastructure. Uh, what what struck me about Dark of the Sun is it's a surprisingly violent film for 1968. It feels like it's really indulging in that post-Bonnie and Clyde thing where they felt like they could yeah, get away totally with it, yeah. a, a lot more of that. Um, and, you know, th- th- common to some of these Africa set war pictures, some of them, I mean, there is a kind of unpleasant racial and colonial overtones. Um, but it, it, like I was saying earlier, it's also concerned with the morality of being a mercenary, of, of, of uh, doing what can you do, how close to the right thing can you do in a situation where you're being paid to kill people and, and complete your mission. Uh, and I think what it's by the end uh, where the character played by Rod Taylor and the, the, the uh, and then the character played by Peter Karsten have the Nazi, they start to go, at one point they even have like a chainsaw fight. Yes. Uh, it, it's uh, only joking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's, I mean, they, they, you know, they have plenty of opportunity to clash, but at the end it becomes almost an animalistic kind of thing. And, and, uh, the question is, is like, what do you sacrifice of yourself in order to, to, uh, you know, do the job. Um, you know, some of that is, is I guess pretty interesting, but it was, it was a little hard to watch in places. I was just like, I mean, aside from the politics, just the sheer, the violence, uh, I mean the, you know, the blood in those movies is, is looks like red paint, but there's still quite a lot of it. I yeah. was, I, I was surprised. I, I think, uh, this was one of the first sort of major action films to come out after the rating system had gone into effect. So now that there's a rating system, Oh, well we can make, an adult-rated action film and really go for it. Not none of this kind of James Bondian guy gets shot and jumps off a 
you know, scaffolding without any sign of blood or anything like that. Like this is, um, this is going to be realistic violence with real repercussions. And, and, uh, you know, at one point I think, you know, the, the, the train pulls up to a plantation where there's been, um, a massacre and you actually, you know, just for a split second, see like body parts scattered into the, I think you see a, a stray limb in the driveway kind of thing. And it's just, it's just for a second, but you do see it and it does leave an impression and it, you, you kind of gives you kind of a, an idea of the kind of hell that uh, these guys are going into. Um, I, I think part of this film's reputation rests on the fact that it was just completely unavailable for so long. It was something that I think a lot of people had fond memories of or remembered seeing as kids you know, maybe on TV or something like that. But uh, it didn't really surface in the home video era until more recently when uh, Warner Archives um, uh, gussied it up and put it out on a, on a disc, uh, sort of a no-frills DVD in the most uncut version that they could find. Apparently, it did get censored in England and it did get censored, I think, in Sweden and some other places. So uh, I think it was a, a part of the, the delay may have been of just finding a complete or as complete a uh, copy as they could. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's right off the bat, I knew something was up when I saw that the screenplay was credited to somebody named Quentin Wirty. And, of course, Quirty is the, the row of keys at the top of the keyboard. A pseudonym, no uh, doubt. Yeah, the, it was actually Ronald McDougal was the writer, but I guess for whatever reason, he decided to take his name off it and, and use this rather clever pseudonym, um, I guess the days before uh, John Smithy, although that's usually a director's pseudonym. But I, I think that Quentin Wirty is a pretty pretty awesome uh, screenwriter pseudonym. And, and maybe maybe uh, he there's another writer uh, credited on here, um, uh, Adrian spies, so maybe he just didn't like what was done with this story, or he thought maybe um, you know some of those nastier colonial aspects were were put in there. I'm not sure what happened with this film, but uh, it seems like there was a bit of a, a dispute with it, and um, uh, you know, and, and Jack Cardiff just kind of just kind of went for it in, in in terms of the violence and and portraying the ugliness of colonialism um, with you know in in, in all its horror, I guess. Um, and he'd worked with uh, Rod Taylor before uh, on um, Young Cassidy, which is a film that Cardiff took over when uh, director John Ford was uh, too sick to, to finish the film. So uh, they had a pretty good working relationship, I gather. And uh, and, and Taylor uh, was, was a real good, you know, kind of he-man uh, action star for the time, I guess. You know, he, he did a lot of its own stunts. You know, he's an Australian, so he's kind of, you know, has that kind of rah-rah kind of aspect to him that uh, is kind of hard not not to dislike. But um, it, it yeah, it is a lot of mixed messages happening in this yeah, film. Yeah, like the, the, the enemy, these Congolese, the Simbas, which is interesting because that's a, a name that is used later in The Wild Geese as the, to describe... And the Lion King. Yeah, yeah to describe <laughs> the, the soldiers there. Uh, you know, they're just a horde of uh, massacring uh, people and you never really get to get a sense of what their motivation is other than bloodshed. And, uh, you know, that some of that stuff is really... It, yeah, it leaves a really bad taste in your mouth. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot uh, there's a lot going on in terms of of uh, character and, uh, and and a fair amount. Just you know, in terms of of just like that. By the end, I was quite amazed at, at there was kind of a psychodrama happening between the, these two characters, as I mentioned, and I. I uh, I appreciated that that they were trying to get to some kind of truth about what what 
what the costs are of of being in this business of of being a, a professional soldier uh, and and uh, yeah I mean I don't know that I would necessarily recommend the film because of the ways in which it has aged so poorly but at the same time it is certainly part of this overall look of these movies that we're talking about today um, now uh, a movie that I loved when I was a kid that came out the same year was Where Eagles Dare, which is entirely a different kind of film, but in some ways it shares that whole it shares that whole men on a mission kind of uh, intent. Now that is a film we talked about when we spoke about the films and the career of Clint Eastwood, um, but uh, I think the the commonality between Where Eagles Dare and the next movie we're going to talk about, which is The Wild Geese, of course, is Richard Burton, who uh, you know late in his career did a lot of these action movies and. Uh, and you know, and, and there is that sense in in both of these movies where he's in charge. He knows what's going on. He's the the centerpiece, and he's got like a wise cracking kind of tough guy, uh, right hand man. In Where Eagles Dare, it was Clint Eastwood, very young Clint Eastwood. In The Wild Geese, it's Roger Moore. Uh, and uh, you know, with The Wild Geese, Roger Moore, the James Bond again, the James Bond connection. Uh, I. Uh, I really, uh, there was, you know, as a kid, I think I saw it like six times. Um, uh, the Wild Geese was directed by Andrew V. McLagan, uh, who also made a film called Folks, which is yes. sometimes known as North Sea Hijack. And he made Sea Wolves, all of which uh, came out around the same time. Um, he also directed The Last Hard Men with James Coburn and Charlton Heston. And he made Chisholm with John Wayne. So he knew about masculine epics. Yeah. And apparently his father was actor Victor McLagan. So he's been, he was kind of grew up with these kinds of movies uh, and, uh, and certainly knew his way around a set. So, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's, uh, I, this is, I know, was a new introduction to you, Stephen. So I can't wait to hear what you thought of The Wild Geese. Yeah, this is a film of, that is it's fairly legendary. Uh, it's a real dad film. Uh, <laughs> which we you know we kind of hinted at earlier in the episode, but this this might be one of the ultimate ones uh, from its time. Uh, it's yeah, Andrew McLaglen uh, directed, not a well loved director. Um, you know, apparently he was a bit of a sadist. Um, his dad was a tough guy, he man actor of the silent days and early thirties, um, who worked with John Ford a lot, who of course worked with John Wayne a lot, and I guess out of some debt of loyalty, uh, John Wayne would hire uh, the son, Andrew McLaglen, to uh, to direct a number of his films. Uh, right, Chisholm, which I mentioned. Chisholm, yeah. Chisholm's yeah. a big one, McClintock, okay. which is uh, famous as the one where he spanks Maureen O'Hara. So, you know, one that doesn't age terribly well. But, but you know, he was known as a guy who was an efficient director who um, maybe, you know, didn't uh, didn't suffer non-actors terribly well, but, uh, but was able to get movies made on time, on budget, and, uh, you know, make kind of more entertainment grist for the mill. None of his films really stand out as classics or, you know, as, as great works of art, really. But uh, but he made films that, that you often see for sale uh, on Father's Day at Walmart. So, right. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, 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 they usually have a kind of a macho adventure kind of tone to them. So he's the perfect director for something like this. Um, made by a director named, uh, or made by a producer, rather, named uh, Evan Lloyd, who... Uh, who his favorite movie was the guns of Navarone. There's a little documentary. If you can get the, um, the 30th anniversary edition DVD, there's a, there's a profile of Lloyd who, uh, who made this film. And it was, he was basically the driving force and he wanted to make a film just like guns of Navarone, you know, to, um, 
to the point of having Richard Harris, who was in Guns of Navarone briefly, um, he's on board here as one of the team members uh, who go into an African nation to uh, to rescue a leader that the whole world thinks has been killed or has died um, during a coup, but is in fact being held prisoner in a compound. Of course, we love a good compound in in, in these films. They're there to be raided and attacked, and and almost every film has a variation on it. Um, and it, and it's just uh, you know, and just assembled a, an all star crew. Uh, team to be in this thing. Obviously, uh, Richard Burton is uh, was a key factor in getting other actors like Richard Harris and and so on to be in here. Um, you know, Stuart Granger is kind of the 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 guy who's backing the mission because, of course, there's an oil interest in this country and they want to stabilize it so they can go in there and set up their their uh, oil business. And uh, and uh, Roger Moore, uh, you know, I've heard some fans of of him say this is one of his best, if not his very best uh, non-Bond performance because uh, he gets to be a tough guy, but he's also a bit of a smart aleck and a bit he's a bit smarmy and he's, he's not quite the same character that he's playing in James Bond. So it's, you know, it's, he often gets criticized as being a bit wooden as an actor, but um, he's able to kind of add a little edge to the, to it here. And, yeah. and that's, that's part of the enjoyment of this film, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's st- sitting there with like a cigar in his mouth and, a, and an Uzi uh, in his hand and he's actually, you know, he's, he's capable. And I think what I liked re- revisiting this film and maybe I didn't pick this up when I was a kid, but uh, these guys are all in their 40s. Like, they are all former, sort of, they're past their prime. And this is kind of one of their last chances to go out, either in a blaze of glory or with a big payday, and and make life better for their, their retirement, you know? They're all just kind of, and certainly that comes up again and again, where they're trying to assemble the crew. They get the redoubtable Jack Watson, who plays, frequently plays kind of a drill sergeant <laughs> kind of character. Anyway, he's yeah, perfect in this. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then there's a South African sharpshooter uh, Hardy Kruger, who uh, who is part of the the team. When things go wrong, he winds up having to uh, to to help take Winston uh, Nishosha, Shona Nishona. Excuse my pronunciation. He's the guy who plays President Julius Lombani, and then they have a conversation about politics through the middle of the savannah. It's this interesting kind of side plot thing that's going on as they're trying to escape to the country. Um, they're having a conversation about the whites and blacks in in Africa, and uh, yeah, I mean, again, there's those problematic racial politics, but uh, but again, there's a lot of. Uh, there's there's a lot of adventure and 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 a fairly tragic story about people who who are misfits and out of place these these military people that can't fit in life they can't find their place and so when they get back together to do this job you know a lot of them are going to die and some of that is telegraphed i mean if you watch movies at all you can see from the get go who's most likely <laughs> yes. to to pay the price we're not going to tip it off but um, if but, you watch this you will know yeah but uh, I thought that the scenes, like towards the end on the airstrip, very exciting. Um, and I really like the theme song by Joan Armour Trading. It feels kind of like a 1970s AM classic that never was. Oh, yeah. That, it's funny because it starts off and I'm like, I know this voice. And it just, I wasn't expecting to hear her voice. I mean, she, her career starts pretty early in, in the 70s. And it, but it wasn't until kind of New Wave and so on that she, you know, there was... Uh, you know, there was second wave ska and all this kind of stuff. And, and she kind of became a star around that period. Not that she rode that wave, but it somehow, you know, made her um, and her type of music um, a little more acceptable to a mainstream audience again, I guess. So, so hearing her this early in her career is, is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a pretty cool song. So, uh, and, and it gives it uh, uh, 
you know, it's better than the kind of, you know, martial drums and the usual kind of. Oh, they're in there too, though. They're in there too, but it does go against the, you know, there's like a Wild Geese March that was kind of actually a big instrumental hit, I guess. Um, But it does kind of give it a different sort of tone, having a Joan Armitrading theme song. Um, And, uh, you know, I do do like, you know, it is the 70s, so I do like the fact that there's a bit of a darker edge to this. You know, Roger Moore is actually, you know, he's, you know, you see him and you think, oh, it's Roger Moore, but he's really not a good guy. He's working for uh, some shady characters off the top of the film, and you know, he's, he does get a chance to show that he does have some principles, but at the same time, he's still willing to, you know, sully them somewhat by the people that he works with. So, you know, th- these guys, uh, obviously, they're, they're more comfortable with a gun in their hand than a, than a cocktail or, a, you know, a, a working a, a day job. So, um, yeah, that's the thing I liked about it was yeah. that, that they're in there. They can't, you know, it's a sort of implicit in their regular lives. None of them are really doing that well. And that brings it back to Triple Frontier. It's like they can't, uh, the military men who who've spent their lives shooting and killing, when they go back to civilian life, they can't quite hack it. So they, this is any opportunity to go back into the field, they're going to take it. So also, late 70s, we watched a film which is squeezing into this this our, our subgenre study even though it's a little <laughs> bit loose it's a little bit outside it but it does qualify in a couple of in a couple of ways and that's Ashanti uh, directed by Richard Fleischer and uh, there I mean there is a mission and there are men but mostly it's Michael Caine who is let's be fair cashing a check in this movie um, <laughs> he as much as admits it yeah he as much. much as admits it uh, he and he plays a character he plays a doctor and he and his wife played by Beverly Johnson they're on a mission to sub-Saharan Africa uh, to inoculate uh, people, villagers, and she's captured by slavers, uh, led by a never more campy Peter Ustinov playing an Arab named Suleiman. Uh, now, this is outrageous casting, but I gotta say that Ustinov is the best thing here. He seems to understand that this script is more comedy than drama, and he's really playing it really broadly. And I would say that if you're gonna watch Ashanti, which is not a film that's f- very well remembered, it, he's the reason to see it. Um, so the chase is on. Kane gets help from an anti-slavery guy, Rex Harrison, who I thought was, I was pretty sure he's going to be some kind of double agent or something, but it never really turns out that way. Um, and then the helicopter pilot and mercenary played by William Holden. And then there's Kabir Bedi as Malik. He's a nomad whose family was murdered by slavers. This chase f- goes from sort of tropical uh, Africa into East Africa, where it becomes much more uh, arid, and of course they shot that in actually in Israel in the Negev Desert. Uh, and Kane's character goes from being sort of like, um, you know, a, a, a mis- he's on he's on a mission of mercy as a doctor, but by the end he's killing people in order to find get to his wife, and he becomes a sort of vengeful spirit. So that's sort of his arc, though. At no time does he ever look like he's having any fun, and he even said, he's gone on the record as saying that making this film was the most uncomfortable, unpleasant experience, and he doesn't even recommend people watch it. Uh, and then Omar Sharif shows up very late <laughs> in the going. Um, but yeah, it's it's not it's not a great movie, but uh, but again, Ustinov, I think, is, is the reason to see it. Yeah, we, we watched this together, and we enjoyed it in spite of itself. <laughs> It is not a great film. Oddly enough, I found the Blu-ray of, of all things of this at uh, at the Halifax Regional Library. So if you live in Halifax, and you have any urge to see this, uh, you can get it from the library, uh, and uh, it is something to watch. Uh, from the director of Soylent Green and Mandingo, it says on the back rather proudly. I don't know why I would proudly proclaim the director of Mandingo, but you know why not the director of Twenty Thousand Leagues from Under the Sea, which is you know 
one of his actual good films. Um, but uh, it, it is fairly outrageous. Uh, it does try to have a bit of a moral side to it by pointing out that the evils of slavery that's still happening today on the African continent. Um, and uh, so at least it tries to claim some sort of moral high ground while it's just indulging in a lot of violence and, and uh, celebrity cameos because it's, um, but you know, we, we do, we do have, um, uh, you know, um, Kane and, and, and his, his friend, is it Sulik or I'm trying to remember his. Ma- Malik, Malik. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the so, Kabir Betty so there character. is two men on a mission when they go after the, the slave train yeah. uh, that's uh, carrying his wife. And William Holden is part of the kind of crew for a while anyway. Yeah. Bad things happen, but he, he's there. He's in it for about 10 minutes. Yeah. He's, yeah. I think he filmed his scenes in, in like, you know, a day probably. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, it definitely has that kind of international co-production kind of feel where we're just, you know, we'll get a bunch of name actors that we can shoot in a couple of days each so that give it some star power and then, uh, you know, stick poor Michael Caine in the middle of it. Um, you know, they fired the director partway through production. Uh, you know, any number of things went wrong with this that could. You know, they're shooting on shooting on locations they couldn't easily get to by vehicle. And, and uh, you know, they, they went through a lot of hardship. But there's a lot. Everybody sweats in this movie. It really does feel like a very sweaty, uh, dirty, grimy kind of movie. But uh you know, I think like uh, Dark of the Sun, this is a, a film that I think because uh, rights issues kind of kept it off the market for so long. I think that stoked interest in having it out there. And uh, I guess this uh, the, the DVD or the Blu-ray from uh, Severin is probably a, about as good as you're going to hope for with this one. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm glad I saw it, though I, would, I wouldn't probably rush out and see it again. Um, but yes, I'm glad you mentioned that it's available for Borrow uh, at the library. Um, one film that we watched that I, uh, I had not seen before as well, and it has a very direct connection to Triple Frontier, <laughs> and that's High Risk, which is a, uh, a 1981 film directed by uh, Stuart Raffill, uh, and it's actually available on YouTube for those who want to watch. It's not a great copy on YouTube. It's a little grainy, uh, and it's uh, the ratio uh, is is not is not what I'd call ideal. But um, it starts so much like Triple Frontier: four old friends heading down to Mexico. Except this time, we don't really know what the reason for the mission is. They they're cagey about why what it is they're doing, and the only one who seems to really know what's happening is James Brolin. And but what we do find out is that we need a lot of guns, and we need a Bijan Frise to go with them. <laughs> Uh, Bruce Davison, Cleavon Little, and Chick Venera are the other guys. And, uh, yeah, and they get down there, and it turns out they're going to steal a bunch of money from James Coburn. And it's also – and Coburn has, like, a private security force, so you know that he's up to bad stuff. Uh, but there's, it's funny how much of the sort of general plot details that, say, Triple Frontier is very upfront about, uh, this film completely glosses over. And it's also a lot lighter. Like, this is almost as much a comedy as it is an action movie. Uh, and uh, and then there's a group of bandits, led by Anthony Quinn, who also get a wind of the money. And, and, and they cross paths with Lindsay Wagner, uh, who's great in a small part. I sort of wanted more of her. Unfortunately, she's only in it sort of from halfway in. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, I really I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it's it's not great, but it's uh, it certainly deserves to be part of this conversation, and I'm I'm glad we I checked it out. Well, it's it's funny that just it's how it shares just so many plot details and elements with with Triple Frontier. I mean, the only, the big difference, of course, these guys are weekend warriors. They're not. They're just. Uh, they're just guys who've been screwed around in their day jobs. Uh, the, I've got the cassette right here. The, we watched a uh, copy made from a video cassette. Um, I have my original copy of the pre-recorded video tape 
from Super Video, the store that used to be on the corner of uh, Queen and Morris. And uh, and it's a, it's actually like an original tape, not a copy, but it still looks like crap. And uh, and it's it's just highly entertaining as these guys realize they're way in over their head. They don't really have the skills to deal with any of this kind of thing. Um, it, the tagline from the posters were basically right on the cover. They're not really commandos. They're just fighting inflation. And in fact, it tries to set up this thing that times are so bad that uh, you know men have to go on missions to basically uh, you know come up with the cash to make their life better. And, uh, and then of course they, they pay, they pay a bit of a price for it along the way. But, um, you know, it, Brolin is, you know, it feels like the kind of role that, you know, earned him the, his spot in uh, Pee Wee's big adventure. It's kind of a, you know, kind of manly gruff James Brolin-y kind of role. He's, he's, he's never been more Brolin-y, uh, than here. And, uh, and, it's fun as he just has this ridiculous amount of confidence as they go on this mission against a drug lord and his army of hired goons. I feel like um, Josh Brolin has inherited that same kind of gruff I'd say. confidence. I mean, you know, even as Thanos, he's you know, Josh has that same thing his dad has. I think they should do a remake with Josh Brolin. Uh, this 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 film. Um, Raphael is uh, probably notorious for making one of the worst films of all time, Mac and Me, uh, which is a film that was made purely so they could cram as many product placements into it as possible. Um, And he was the director of that fine uh, piece of work. Um, Here he was hired uh, with three weeks' notice to head into uh, um, the the Mexican jungle to shoot this action-adventure film. I guess the producers were kind of flying fast and free, and they somehow managed to get Ernest Borgnine, James Coburn, and Anthony Quinn on board, three Oscar winners, all on this film. It's not great, but it does have fun with the conventions of the genre. There's lots of cliches that get turned on their head. Um, my favorite moment is when they, they the commando bangs a guy on the head thinking he's just going to instantly pass out, but instead he just screams and yells and alerts everybody else because, of course, not everybody instantly passes out when uh, when you clonk them on the head. So um, <laughs> there, there are lots of... And Lindsay Wagner is kind of irreverent as this woman who's was busted for a bit of drug, you know, having a bit of pot in her possession, and she's stuck in this uh, crappy uh, Colombian jail. And, uh, you know, it just has enough light moments to kind of keep you going. And it's, and it's very brisk. It's only about uh, just over an hour and a half. So that that alone is, is reason to give it a give it a shot. Um, we should also before we wrap up here as we're getting close to our uh, our, our time uh, talk about Dogs of War which is uh, yes. from 1980. It's from the Frederick Forsyth novel directed by John Irvin who directed the TV version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This stars a none more cadaverous Christopher Walken as Jamie Shannon. He is of all of these movies we're talking about this I think is the, the one that's most clear-eyed about the costs of being a mercenary. He has a, quite a lonely life. He lives in, in New York City um, and he's solitary, but for, you know, he chats with some of the kids on his block, but otherwise he doesn't really have much, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to have any friends other than people he, he travels places to kill with. Um, and uh, he gets a job checking out this African country, this fictional African country, Zangaro, st- uh, Belize standing in, uh, from a man who's considering resource inve- inv- investment there. And uh, he finds that the dictator has an iron grip. He's a madman. Yeah, very Idi Amin-esque. Yes. And uh, once again, Winston Nashona shows up in the film. He's in, he's in uh, it's Wild, Geese. Wild Geese and in Ashanti. So he really was working a lot in these movies in yeah, those he days. Yeah, he did one right after the other. Um, 
anyway, it's it's a, a great Christopher Walken performance as the center of this kind of slithery, cold character who it's unusual to see someone playing, you know, a character who's so unsympathetic in the center of one of these movies. The, the third act is all the planning for a coup of this country. And it is and they jump back and forth between Paris and London as they're getting all the equipment and he's getting his crew together, including Tom Berenger and Paul Freeman, both of whom are great in this. Uh, and then the final blow up uh, is is really something to see the final attack. This is a this is I think a movie that's aged better than a lot of these other ones just because it it's not romantic at all. No, I saw this when it came out, and uh, you know, so I was I was only like thirteen the first time I saw it. So a lot of this kind of went over my head. So it was nice to watch it again, uh, especially in the longer. There's a longer cut of it that's been made available on the current Blu-ray, which has some extra. Uh, interplay between uh, Walken and his ex-wife and they talk about maybe patching things up and you know um, and so on and so there, there there's a bit more of his background inserted well I don't know why they took it out I don't know um, it does help ground his character a little bit more um, but uh, you know I guess they decided they just wanted the action stuff um, you know and I guess that was stuff that was in the original novel um, you know Forsyth writes these fairly well-considered international intrigue kind of stories, um, but he, he, you know, he does try to invest some some time in the characters here. Uh, aside from Walken, we don't really get a lot of time to get to know uh, the rest of the crew, but uh, you know, we, we get a sense of their camaraderie and their sense of humor along the way. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was that brief window when Christopher Walken was considered a, a, a leading man because yeah. it, was, it wasn't a wide window. No, you know, uh, it ended somewhere with like around King of New York and Communion, I think, and then. Yeah. He was kind of more about character parts, but uh, but he's great here, and he does. He's really magnetic, and he, anytime he's on screen, he just commands it. Yeah, he goes from cadaverous to demonic very quickly. Um, now, before we go, we should say there's a Tarantino film, Inglorious Bastards, that's a Men on a Mission movie, though it's really more of a Tarantino movie than a Men on a Missions movie. Uh, yeah, it, and it's based on an Italian film of the same name with a slightly different spelling. There you is, go. Which is also great. It's more in the. Uh, dark of the sun kind of mode but uh you know it's an italian directed film with a lot of violence and a lot of iffy politics but but very much a product of its time and worth seeking out uh, as a cult movie yeah um but inglorious bastards i mean if you're a tarantino fan it's certainly worth seeing I, it felt to me rewatching it like a little bit like a collection of short films sort of strung together uh but it, it has it has that that thing it does definitely qualify for this genre and you know what else qualifies for this genre is annihilation uh that this is maybe the only example that we could find of a women on a mission movie uh, that really qualifies. It's, it's of course, Alex Garland film adapting the novel by Jeff Vandermeer. This is a movie that's on Netflix. It's very much worth seeing, uh, you know, idea-based science fiction. But it's it has a, a group of women, uh, a teacher, a biologist, and formerly and and. Uh, uh, they're military people, former military, at least the Natalie Portman character. And uh, they go into these mysterious wetlands, which they call the Shimmer, which has got this, uh, this strange extraterrestrial kind of vibe to them. Uh, and uh, and uh, Oscar Isaac as well is in this. So so it all brings it back. Uh, but but I want to say that, that, you know, unfortunately, these movies rarely have women in them. And uh, but this is one that definitely is, is worth seeing. Yeah, I, I love this film in the theater. And obviously, it, it, the visuals of this film are amazing. Uh, uh, Garland uh, 
prior to this directed at directed Ex Machina, another film we've discussed. Uh, also, also with uh, Oliver Isaacs, and uh, another film worth checking out if you haven't seen it. And and this film, uh, it, it's just so thoughtful and uh, full of so many unexpected moments, and uh, and also is is kind of open to interpretation. I mean, I think different people can watch this and come away with a different idea about what happened over the course of the film. It's it's not a vague film. It's it's not like a big enigma. Um, you can follow the storyline easily enough, but but it does leave things a little open-ended uh, so that you can come up with your own conclusions about some of it. And I like that. And of course, uh, the performances are terrific along the way as this, this um, troop of women goes further into this uh, alien infected bayou. Uh, and, and, you know, it's great to see Jennifer Jason Lee in a strong uh, leading role as well. And, and Portman is terrific. And, uh, and again, it just, it's a visual feast as uh, different uh, things happen and they encounter different uh, weird mutations along the way. And uh, I, I, it was definitely one of my favorite films of that year. Well, thank you so much for listening to Lend Me Your Ears uh, and our look at men on a mission movies and one women on a mission movie that we were able to see. Um, Stephen, thanks very much for, for showing me some of these, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to finally introduce you to uh, a, a film from my childhood, uh, The Wild Geese. Um, now, uh, we are f- available on social media in multiple places. we got a Facebook page. We are on Twitter, Lends Me Your Ears, and Stephen and I both have our own Twitter handles. Mine is Flaw in the Iris, which is named after my blog. And I'm at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. We also have a Patreon account if you'd care to uh, help support us in our efforts to talk about movies every two weeks. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities here, 88.1 FM in Halifax, uh, and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And also thanks to our producers at Village Soundcast Network for bringing it all together and making us sound good. Consider this mission accomplished. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.